Man, thank you, choir. Thank you, uh, musicians, for leading us in song. We have the privilege, and it is a privilege, to turn our attention to God's Word. We're going to read John 11. I'll read verses 1 through uh, 53. One of the reasons that we're in John 11 is because this is one of the I am statements of Jesus. Another reason we're in it is because on Easter, it is appropriate to celebrate and remember and ponder what it means for Jesus to conquer the grave. But what John is going to do and what Matthew is going to do also is remind us that our own resurrection and our own hope for resurrection is bound up in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what John is doing is the same thing that Matthew does in Matthew 27. John gives us the resurrection of Lazarus, and I want to submit to you that that's like a, an appetizer to the main course, and the main course is Jesus's own resurrection. And then what Matthew does in Matthew 27, he says, after Jesus was raised, that many of the tombs of the saints opened up. And that the saints appeared, many of them, in Jerusalem. And what these gospel writers are doing for us is reminding us that we celebrate the resurrected king, but your own hope for resurrection is bound up in that as well. And John says, let me show you one instance where Jesus raises somebody. Matthew says, let me show you another instance where Jesus raises many. This is God's word. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover on his own. Now, Jesus had spoken of Lazarus's death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been already in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and so many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and his soul was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to, the, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to, him, to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is alive and it is rich and it is true. And it is written for our good. It is written that we might grow in godliness and grace. It is written that the God who dwells in an inapproachable light might reveal himself to us by his word through the spirit as he guided men, as they wrote, as you led them. Father, we will be pleased here if we would see Jesus. He reminds us that if he is lifted up, that he will draw all men and women and children to himself. He's not just referring to his lifting up on a cross, but he is referring to all of life and preaching and teaching and living. 
as we exalt him and lift him up, you do the drawing, you do the convincing, you do the saving, you do the growing in grace. And so, Holy Spirit, do that through your servant for the good of your people and for the fame of your name. I pray. Amen. So Tuesdays this week, uh, we got a phone call that my son uh, was sick. He had uh, thrown up in school, and, and so on my lunch hour, I got in the car and drove down Northside Drive and, and past uh, State Street and past um, Hanging Moss and past Bailey Watkins and went past the, the old energy, I think it's the Rex Brown power plant uh, near Grove Park, and and was going in that direction to make a right on Mega Evers and, and how, um, 49, which is where his school is. And I was meditating on uh, Dane Ortland's new book. Um, and I, I was meditating on it because we were about to have staff meeting. And that's the book that we're reading together as a staff, Gentle and Lowly. And in that chapter, Dane is writing, uh, chapter eight, he's writing about the present ministry of Jesus. Like, what is Jesus doing right now? And the Bible says he lives to make intercession for you. Right now, he's interceding. Right now, he is your advocate. He is aligning himself with you. And so I'm driving down Northside Drive, and, and that's where my mind is. I was so distracted thinking about it that uh, I didn't realize that I was in the middle of a funeral procession. And so I'm just driving and thinking and thinking and thinking and, and just kind of going through the motions and I see some uh, blue lights in front of me. And so then I, I kind of wonder, like, man, is he pulling people over? Should I get over? And I was like, no, he's not pulling people over. Then I look to my right, and there's a, 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 a train of just cars, and all of them with their flashers on. Then I see the people on the opposite side of traffic, and they've all pulled over. And all of a sudden, here I am meditating on the riches of Jesus, and I am right next to a funeral procession. And then my mind begins to wonder, is he going to make a right on 49 and, and take that family to where my mom's side of the family is buried? Is he going to make a left on Megar Evers and go into the Georgetown neighborhood where my dad's side of the family is buried? Is he going to keep straight on Northside Drive where a childhood friend of mine is buried, where I recently uh, did a funeral, right? My mind began to wonder. And then... I looked to the right, and I was next to the family, behind the hearse. And you could see weeping and sadness. And I, I prayed with them as I was driving. And then there was an invasion, because I thought about me. And I thought about me being in that hearse. And I thought about my wife and my children and friends in tow behind an officer. And I thought about, where will I be buried? I thought about death. And it invaded my mind. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. The longing for resurrection, the longing for life after life after death. The longing to know that someone will not forget me when I'm in the grave. That someone will call to me, come out. When do you feel the tug of eternity? When do you feel the sting of death? Is it at a funeral? Is it when you watch the television and you see dead bodies scattered 
in the Ukraine? Is it when you look in the mirror and you see another wrinkle that was not there six months ago and gray hair that was not there a year ago? Does eternity reach into your present and say you're dying? When does it happen for you? Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has written eternity on the hearts of all humans. And Solomon does not say God has written eternity on the hearts of Christians or Jews. He said God has written eternity, the longing for life after death, on the hearts of every single human. Now my question is, how would Solomon know that? How can you make that statement? It's because if you read 1 Kings 10, we're told that the queen of Sheba went to Solomon. We're told in, in 1 Kings 10 that Solomon got peacocks from Africa and gold and trees and silver that he's interacting and trading with the world. And here's what I think Solomon is saying. I think he's saying Trust me, I've done business with those from Tarshish. Trust me, I've done business with those in Asia. Trust me, I've talked to Africans. Trust me, the world as you know it, they've come to me for wisdom, and we may be different in culture and worldviews, but here's the same thing, the same thread that runs through all of humanity. It's every one of us comes here not wanting to die not wanting to be in a hearse, not wanting to know that the grave has the final say. God has written eternity on all of our hearts. And some of us will stuff that. We think because we're young that that day is like way, way out. We think that because we have youth and vibrancy now that we can put this aside Some of us come up with other ideas to get us through the resurrection, like reincarnation. Some of us suppress it. Some of us numb it. Some of us busy ourselves with it. But then it's days like that when you see a dead body in a grieving family that it hits you out of nowhere. It's been appointed for you to die. And then what? You see, Easter is about victory over the grave. Jesus is saying, if your theology of resurrection does not run through me, you will not be resurrected into eternal life. John 5, you will be resurrected into eternal judgment. It's not ironic that Matthew, after, John, before, give us these accounts of humans being resurrected. It's as if the gospel writers are saying, he really is the resurrection and the life. And those who are in him, you need not fear death when it comes. It is a sting. It has lost its victory. He has conquered hell and the grave and Satan and death. And you are free. But Jesus doesn't just say that he's a resurrection and the life. He shows us. And what John is doing is showing us the heart 
and the power of the one who is a resurrection and a life. And that's what I want to do. I want to I hone in on the context where Jesus makes this statement and look at what he feels and what he's doing to remind us that he is the resurrection and the life. And the first thing I want to look at in this passage is the love of Christ, the love of the one who is the resurrection and the life. First point. Now, when you read the passage, the, the, John goes to great lengths to let you know that Lazarus and Mary and Martha are not strangers to Jesus. That if you go back and read Luke 10, I think it is, it's, it's there where Martha and Mary one is, one is waiting tables and the other is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha comes to Jesus, tell her to help me. And Jesus says, no, she's chosen the better thing. It's that family, the same family. But look at this passage. Three different time, times we're told that Jesus loves them. Look at verse 3. When the sisters send word to Lazarus, send word to Jesus, he says, Lazarus, the one that you love is ill. So that's the sisters telling Jesus, you love him, and he's sick. But then look at what John himself says in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So that's the sisters saying Jesus loved them. That's John saying he loved them. And then turn over to verse 36. When Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, it's the Jews. The Jews see him, and they see his weeping, and they say, man, he loved him. Now here's the twist in this passage. He loves them. He loves them. He loves them. And yet when he hears that Lazarus is sick, he chooses to wait. Do y'all see that? Look, look at it with me. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place. And then in verse 11, Lazarus dies, and he tells, he tells the disciples he's falling asleep, but I go awake him, and the disciples says, well, Lord, if he's just asleep, he'll just get up. And Jesus says, let me tell you plainly, he has died. And then Jesus leaves. So somehow, Jesus miraculously knows when life leaves Lazarus' body, even though he's a two- to three-day journey from where Lazarus is, and then Jesus decides when his divine mind reveals that Lazarus has died, now I'm going to go. But it's going to take him four days, three to four days to get there, so that by the time Jesus shows up, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, in Jewish thought, you were dead, dead on the third day. Not play dead, 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 starting to stink dead, rigor mortis setting in dead. And so Jesus seems to be saying, I'll, I'm going to wait till he really dead, dead. And then I'm going to show up. But you love them? Did you notice how Mary and Martha respond differently? Martha, upon hearing that Jesus is there, she runs out to meet Jesus. What did Mary do? Mary stayed in the house. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text, but I think what she might be dealing with is how dare you say you love us? And you didn't show up. We sent word to you, and we told you he was ill. And if you had come here, you could have stopped him from dying. 
But you were up there doing your little miracles and with everybody else and the people that you love dearly, you told us, no, you didn't even show up for the funeral. No, I'm not going out to you. I'm going to kick back right here. Maybe. Martha, on the other hand, she goes out and she says it politely and diplomatically. Master, I'm glad you're here. But if you had gotten here earlier, he wouldn't have died because I know that God listens to you. And Jesus says to her, do you think you'll see your brother again? Yeah, I do. On the last day. Now, where would she get that from? Jesus says it in John chapter 5. He talks. He says, do not marvel that uh, at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good for the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John 5, 28. And so Martha is a good Jew. She believes in a future day, in a future day in the future where everyone will be raised, not just Christians. Everybody's going to hear the voice of Christ and everybody's going to be raised from the dead. Death does not have the final say. Everyone will be raised and some will go to eternal life and some will go to eternal death, but everyone will be raised. Martha's a good Jew. I believe in the future day. That's when I'll see him there on the future day. And then Jesus poses the statement. You believe in the future resurrection on the last day. What if I told you that I am the resurrection and the life? And whoever believes in me, though they die, yet they shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, you will never truly die. And Jesus asks her a question. Do you believe this? What is the this? That he is the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in him will not die. And notice what Martha responds. She says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. That ain't what Jesus asked her. He asked her, do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? Now put together what she believes. She believes in a general resurrection in the future for all people. Check. She believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Check. She believes that whatever Jesus asks the Father, the Father will do. Check. She does not yet believe that he is equal with the Father, that all things were made for him and from him and to him, that all things are held together by his glorious might and powerful word. She is like us, isn't she, that we know about Jesus, but there is so much more we don't know about Jesus. And the fool says, I have God figured out. The fool says, my theology is so airtight that God cannot surprise me with anything about him that I don't already, already know. You know who that is? That's a fool. He is inexhaustible. His wisdom is above our wisdom. He, he, he is not figure outable. There is room for us all, even with good theology like Martha, to grow some more. That's what the old people used to say. The more you grow, the more you realize you don't know. And so Jesus, right, loves them deeply, and he wants her to grow up. He wants her 
to add to her theology, not just about the future day of resurrection, but that's my day. And Jesus is willing to lose the war to win the battle. What is most loving, Redeemer? To show up and stop Lazarus from dying? Or to let him die and let him be dead, dead, and let Jesus raise him from the dead so that you now believe that there is nothing impossible with him? Which is more loving? You see, if you got kids, then you know that kids will be the first to tell you, if you love me, you won't whoop me. If you love me, you won't whoop me. If you love me, you won't ground me. If you love me, you'll let me eat potato chips for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If you love me, right? But parents, we know something else, don't we? We know that their definition of love is too small. We know that sometimes the best way to love them is to not give them what they want or to give them what they don't want because we're playing chess and not checkers in this game of parenting, aren't we? And so here's what Jesus says. The most loving thing for me to do is to stay up here and to let him die and to let you grieve and to let him be in the tomb for four days because I'm going to show up and I'm going to show out. You see, we talk about that's love. They hung him high and stretched him wide three days later, right? For, I mean, for, for us, he died. Three days later, he rose again. That's love. That's love. Jesus says, this is love, too. Sometimes I will not show up when you want me to. Sometimes I will not give you the thing that you think you need the most. Sometimes my patience will look like an eternity in showing up. But behind my absence, I'm being moved by something greater. And it's love and it's glory. That's the first thing you see about the one who is the resurrection and the life. He loves us. The second thing John shows us is Jesus' heart towards death. There's some grief, there's some eagerness, and there's some anger in the heart of the one who is the resurrection and the life. John portrays Jesus as wise and loving. Then he continues to give us uh, an interior look at the heart of Christ. Do you ever wonder how Jesus feels when cancer knocks on your door? When you miscarry? When you bury a son? or bury a father or a mother. You ever wonder, like, how do you truly feel? We don't have to guess. John tells us. It tells us that, that Jesus wept, that Jesus burst into tears at the moment when he sees Mary and all the Judeans with her in tears. He doesn't sweep into the scene and declare that tears are beside the point, that Lazarus is not dead. He's only asleep. No, he weeps all the while knowing what he's about to do. He cries. That's what the Jews see. 
But we're also told that he's greatly troubled in verse 33. At the end of verse 33, he's greatly troubled. That word, it means to be stirred up, to be uneasy, to be in a, in a frenzy. You know, it could, this could be some anger. And, and one scholar says, man, Jesus could for a moment be taken aback because as he sees this tomb and this stone that needs to be rolled away in, in the four days that, that Jesus could be getting a glimpse at what's going to happen to him, that they're going to put a stone over him, that he's going to be bound in grave cloths, that he's going to be inside a cave. And so as Jesus is going to Lazarus's tomb, that he's kind of taken aback because he sees that this is going to be me in a few days. But what's repeated twice is in verse 33 and verse 38. It says that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her, he was deeply moved in spirit. Verse 38, he was deeply moved again when he came to the tomb. One of my favorite commentaries on John is by Andreas Kostenberger. And here's what he writes about that word. It is such a rare and rich word. He says the only use of this word preceding its use in the Bible is used in the context of war horses snorting as they brace themselves before they attack an enemy. In other words, it's an inner stirring that anticipates a fight, a war, a battle where the the horse is going to be the aggressor. And what John is saying is that this is how Jesus feels about death that it causes him inner frustration and turmoil, that it readies him to not just sit there passively and watch his people die, but that it moves him to do something about it. And so that's the reason when Jesus gets to the tomb in verse 38, he feels the same thing. Jesus knows exactly what he's about to do. He's about to go to battle. He's about to go to war. He's about to overturn death. He's about to render the grave powerless. This is how Jesus feels about death. He takes no delight in it. It grieves him. It breaks his heart. He cries. He loathes the fact that we have to have companies to modify Cadillacs so that dead bodies can go in them. He appreciates the dignity by which those in that business handle the body, but he hates that that business had to, has to exist. And here's the thing. Don't we all kind of feel that way about death? Don't we all cry? Don't we all lament it? Aren't we all afraid of it? Don't we all wish that it were not true? Have you ever been angry at death? And I mean like angry. About four or five years ago, on my birthday, a young man that was a part of our church, I used to cut his hair. He was murdered on my birthday. And I had the privilege of going to the funeral home when they had got him dressed and had cut his hair. And his mom let me go back. I mean, I was just sad. I was angry. 
angry because he brought joy to our lives. Angry that someone had the power to take his life. Angry. And it was righteous anger. And here's the thing. For all of my grief and all of your grief and all of your anger and all of your sadness and all of your tears, we are powerless to do something about it. I can't bring him back. I can't make it better that you go through life limping and hurting. But not Jesus. You see, what John's going to show us is a lot of people were grieving that day. A lot of people were hurt that day. A lot of people were sad that day. But there was one person out there whose grief and sadness and sorrow and anger was matched with power. And his name was Jesus. And this is the third thing John shows us, that the power of Christ to do something because he is something. He is the eternal life. He is the resurrection and the life. So when I was growing up, my favorite Avenger was the Incredible Hulk. Today, it's, it's probably the Black Panther, and, and the Incredible Hulk is like right behind him. And if you know his sort of origin story, he's exposed to gamma radiation, and, and he works in a lab, and he's a, 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 a quirky, mild-mannered, easygoing guy, right? Until you get him mad. And then he kind of turns into the Hulk. And when I was a kid, I, I used to watch it just for that. I, I don't want to see all this other stuff. Just show me when he's, his quads get the size of like my body, right? Show me when his, his, when his biceps kind of burst out of his shirts. Show me when he turns green and he just sort of just looks like this imposing figure. And then when he turns into that, it's trouble for anyone because no one is stronger than the Hulk. And I love to see the Hulk take it to the bad guys. That's the way that John pictures Jesus. In verses 1 through 37, he's weeping, he's crying, he's delaying, he's tender. But something happens when you get to verse 38. Something happens at the base level of John's writing. And here's what I mean. From 38 on... The imperatives show up in this chapter. Jesus being moved and being ready for battle from verse 38 on, what he's saying is commands. I command you to remove the stone. And guess what happens? I don't know who he's talking to. Is he talking to the disciples? Is he talking to who, who is he talking to? I don't know, but it actually says he commands him. And Martha says, Lord, there will be an odor. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you if you believe you will see the glory of God? And so they, they listened. They took away the stone. So the first command is to living people move the stone. And the living people obey and they move the stone. The second command in verse 43, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus. Come out. And not only do the living obey Jesus and move the stone, the dead man obeys Jesus. 
Now, here's how I used to think about this passage. I used to think that Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And so Lazarus kind of gets up, and then he kind of walks out, and he's like, ta-da, right? I don't think that's how this is written. I, I, this is another miracle inside the miracle. I think Lazarus is laying down, and he is bound in grave clothing. And so when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus is not walking out in grave clothing. Lazarus' body is turning from a, a 90 degree to upright, and then it comes out of the cave, and he's standing at attention, and then Jesus issues two more commands. What are the other two commands that he, that he gives them? Unbind him and let him go. In other words, do you see what's happening? Jesus didn't need them to walk Lazarus out the grave. He summoned him out. And when he came out, then Jesus says, hey, now unbind him and let him go so that he might walk. Who has the power to bring the dead back to life? Only the one who is the resurrection and the life. And you know what Jesus wants us to believe this morning? There is a future day of a general resurrection for everyone. But do not get it twisted. That day on that calendar will not resurrect you. That's his day. And that's his voice. And that's his power. And on that day, we will respond to his voice, his power, and all will be raised. And what Jesus wants Martha and Mary to see is this. You ever heard of like a basketball player when they might say, my game travels with me? You know what that means? It means if I'm playing in Brooklyn on my home court, my game is there. And if you take me to Philly and put me on a basketball course in Philly, my game travels with me. In other words, where we play is not the deal. The fact is, I'm better than you, and my game travels with me. And what Jesus is telling them, his game travels with him. He isn't just a resurrection and the life on that day when you suit him up in flesh and you send him wherever, however many miles it is from wherever he was before, you put him anywhere in Bethany. He says, my game travels with me because I'm the resurrection and the life. I will summon him out of the grave and he will listen to my voice. This is good news for you. If you lost someone to cancer and they knew Jesus, you're going to see him again. If you grew up without your father because he died in a car accident, you will see him again. If you buried your little one and you missed out on her growing old, you will see her again. And if you bury your parents, you will see them again. And if you lose a spouse, and there in Jesus, you will see them again. When cancer calls and strokes show up, fear not. He is the resurrection and the life. Which moves us into our last and final and quick point. Who partakes of this? 
You see, I think there's a, a, a pattern or a type that's happening here. If you read, who partakes of this type of resurrection? Now, Lazarus, y'all, he's going to die again. He's going to die twice. So I'm just going to let that cat out of the bag. But his rising from the dead and what happens in the next chapter, I think, is a picture. Look over in the next chapter. The next time you hear about Lazarus, what is he doing? Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave Jesus a dinner. And Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Think about that image. He was laying down in a tomb, and now he's laying down next to Jesus around a table at a meal. It's a picture. It's a picture of the final meal where we will feast in the house of Zion forever. That's how John, who writes the book of Revelation, ends his book. It ends with a feast of epic proportions where Satan has been triumphed over, has been destroyed and we will relax in kingly repose with Jesus and eat with him and then step into the new heavens and the new earth. And Lazarus gets to get a sample. He gets to be raised from the dead and then he gets to recline at a meal. But Mary sees something more. This is Passover. Remember that? Passover was a feast that screamed need. One needs to die so that others might be free. One needs to die. And so the touch, you had to touch an animal. You had to hear it as you slayed it. You had to taste it and smell it and cook it. And it was a sensory overload of you need a substitute. And here's what Mary does. And she sees it, and none of the men in the room saw it. She breaks a flask of alabaster that would have been a year's worth of her wages. And she introduces another fragrance into the room. One of need, and now provision of need. She sees she sees that, that this aroma of the Passover is, we're needy, we're needy, but this aroma of the ointment, it's God is providing. Do you not see that this is the Passover lamb? And no one will prepare his body for burial, but I will do it. I will pour out my all to prepare him for burial because he is going to go into the grave. He is going to go do victory. He's going to go do war over the grave. He is going to defeat Satan. He is going to satisfy the wrath of God. He is going to remove the permanent penalty for our sin. He is going to do it. And so ironically, when you read the end of this chapter, the Jews are plotting, hey, 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 this guy, if everybody goes after this guy, Rome will crush us. The king of Rome will abolish us. And so here's the plan. Let's kill Jesus so that we can stay in Rome's good graces. And they have no idea that there's more going on beneath the surface. Remember the lesson Jesus is teaching Lazarus, what looks like I don't love you is really love. What looks like they are satisfying Rome, they're not. 
They're really satisfying the righteousness of God. And so Jesus will submit himself to the same logic of heaven that says that things are not what they appear. And so Jesus himself, being loved by the Father, but the Father also loving us, the Father will look at Jesus and say, there is no other way. You must die that they might go free. And I know it's going to look like Rome is doing this, but I'm doing this. And just like you had Lazarus wait on you because you love them, I'm going to let you go in the grave. And I'm going to leave you there. And I'm going to satisfy my righteous requirement for perfection. But I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to come right on time. And I'm going to resurrect you just like you resurrected him. And you will triumph over the grave. And you will come out. The stone will be moved. No one has to move it. I'm going to move it. And your grave clothes, I won't have to tell anyone to take them off. I'm going to take them off myself and fold them for you. And you come out never to die again with all power in your hand. Who gets to partake of the resurrection? Those who believe. 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 It's simple. It's free. Those who trust in him will never die. He will live forever. Don't believe your eyes. Don't even believe your heart. Believe your king. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you so much for Easter and the good news that it reminds us of. I pray for those, Lord, who are struggling with grief and sorrow and sadness and fear. Would you ease our fears and comfort our hearts by reminding us that you are the resurrection and the life. We can grieve now, missing people. We can grieve, Lord, even pondering our own death. But our grief is now mixed with hope, just like it was in that room. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.